0: In early December of 2019, the area director for OSHA's Austin, Texas office, he was driving into work one morning when he passed by a construction site on the side of the highway and he noticed workers engaged in excavation work on the side of the road. They were installing a water line near the intersection of Route 183 and Interstate 35. He couldn't be sure, but he believed that he witnessed an employee working in an unprotected trench excavation. When he got to his office, he sent two of his compliance officers back to investigate the work site that same day. As a result of that inspection, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued two citations to the employer, J.D. Abrams, L.P. The employer appealed the citations to an administrative law judge. I should say contested those citations to the administrative law judge and asserted the affirmative defense of unpreventable employee misconduct. After the administrative law judge affirmed both citations, the employer recently appealed the decision to the Fifth Circuit of Appeals, where it is currently awaiting review. We're going to discuss this case and the defense of affirmative employee misconduct and how we think the Fifth Circuit might rule and what this might mean for you in the OSHA 3030 community. This is the July 19th, 2023 episode. I'm Manish Rath, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Well, welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm an attorney here at Keller & Heckman, and I am uh, here in Washington, D.C. We've been producing this program for about 10 years, and next month will actually be our 10th anniversary for the OSHA 3030, and my practice, which has been uh, ongoing for about 28 years, is focused entirely on, or almost entirely on, representing management in occupational safety and health law, amongst other associated administrative law fields. I'm really lucky today because I'm joined by my friend and colleague here in our Occupational Safety and Health Law Practice Group, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome to the OSHA 3030.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Manish. It's a pleasure as always.
0: Well, Taylor, as you know, we've got an important subject today uh, to talk about. This case is going to go before the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit, and the case is J.D. Abrams versus the Occupational Safety and Health uh, Review Commission. We're going to talk in this episode of the OSHA 3030 about the facts in the J.D. Abrams case and some of the elements that we think are are most important in this discussion. We're going to cover all of the elements of the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, as well as discussing how the administrative law judge applied that defense. Uh, We'll engage in an analysis of the petitioner's brief, as well as JD, uh, J.D. Abrams' brief, as well as the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's brief, And finally, as we always do, we're going to walk through some practical steps that employers can take in light of this decision uh, in the section called What Employers Should Do. This is a live program that we publish as a webinar for our live audience. And then we'll republish the recording as a podcast and as well post the video of the slides and and audio as a YouTube uh, hosted on our website, khlaw.com. But for the live audience, we'll, we'll finish off with an off-the-record section where uh, participants are encouraged to pre-submit questions and we'll try and tackle them. We'll also, if we have time, try and look at the question and answer box here on your screen. But we'll start off with pre-submitted questions and then uh, try and achieve uh, going through whatever we have time for from the live audience questions that are submitted during the program. So Taylor, why don't we go and get into this? This is a really important case.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so just to get into the facts a little bit of of J.D. Abrams versus uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Uh, So J.D. Abrams is a company of about 500 employees. Um, They typically perform highway construction projects.
0: That's right. And in December of 2019, they were engaged in a highway construction project. They were doing a waterline installation project on the side of highway. In Austin, Texas.
1: That's right. And so on December third of 2019, um, the OSHA area director uh, of the Austin, Texas office actually happened to be driving by the worksite and saw what he believed at the time was an employee working in an unprotected trench.
0: So he, when he got back to his office, he sent compliance officers back to conduct an inspection, and in fact, they noticed that there was a trench that didn't have protection. After the investigation. J.D. Abrams was issued a citation for having employees in an unprotected trench that was five feet deep or greater, uh, that was not protected from cave-ins. In addition, there's another issue there that the compliance officer noticed a ladder uh, in the trench to enter and exit the trench that the standard that he cited J.D. Abrams for in that case was that the ladder should extend above the ground level by at least three feet above the landing surface. And so he cited them for that as well. So, so J.D. Abrams issued a notice of contest.
1: They did. And just to provide a little bit more context here, because um, we get into the defense of, of unpreventable employee misconduct, is um, there was an employee, uh, Ramon Rivera, we call him Mr. Rivera, uh, who was an installation supervisor uh, for Abrams. His, his conduct here specifically, I think, is worth just going into a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's right. The day before OSHA's inspection, the same company crew was engaged in a different part of the same line of the waterline installation, further up road, and uh, at that uh, on that day, the day before the inspection, uh, when installing a trench box for protecting against cave-ins, a section of the waterline pipe underneath the trench bed was crushed, burst, and flooded the trench. Uh, Mr. Rivera believed that it was the trench box that crushed the pipe that did damage to the pipe and caused flooding of the trench
1: that's right he did and because of that the next day he tells the crew that because of the crushed pipe the day before they're not going to use the trench box um, for for that day's operation it was a critical fact
0: interesting point taylor because the the fact being alleged here by osha is that mr rivera the foreman of that project uh, had specifically decided not to use the trench box because he believed that the trench box was responsible for for crushing right. the water pipe. Right. So, so they are issued a citation and J.D. J. Abrams contested both citation items. We're going to talk about the one involving trench cavens uh, and alleged in their defense, the affirmative of defense, that they didn't, as an organization, have knowledge of the hazardous condition that the trench was unprotected at the time of any entry. And that Mr. Rivera, to the extent that he prevented he permitted employees to enter the trench in an unprotected state, he he engaged in unpreventable employee misconduct was their defense. So why don't we first Taylor talk about what does OSHA have to prove when making a case that a violation occurred uh, when they're alleging a violation of a specific OSHA standard?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's four elements. Uh, the first is that the standard itself applies, um, which in this particular case w- was not a big hurdle um, you know, for OSHA to overcome. It was, it was a trench standard and it was you know, clearly working in a trench.
0: That's right. And the second element that OSHA has to prove is that the employer, OSHA has to allege and establish that the employer did not comply with the terms of the standard that it alleges applies to the work being performed.
1: Uh, The third is that the employees had access uh, to the violative condition. Another way to think about this is is exposure, that there was actual exposure, um, you know, connecting sort of the violative condition um, to the employees.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and finally, in every citation uh, issuing an allegation of a violation of a specific standard, the agency has to establish that the employer had actual or constructive knowledge of the violation. It, the mere status of a violation that an employer was unaware of and couldn't have known, even through the exercise of reasonable diligence, would not per se constitute a violation of the standard. Right. Well, that's that's the four elements that OSHA has to establish. And that brings us around to J.D. Abrams' argument that even if those four elements theoretically could be established, that that they were Involved in such a circumstance where an employee had engaged in unpreventable employee misconduct, and that they shouldn't be the ones held responsible for an employee's misconduct that they couldn't in any way prevent.
1: Right. And so the the key thing about the four elements here um, is that the employer actually bears the burden of proof. So J.D. Abrams, these are the four elements that they need to prove. Um, the first is that they had work rules designed to to prevent the violative condition from occurring.
0: Right, Taylor. And the second is that the, the employer will have to establish in trying to make a case for an unpreventable employee misconduct defense that it had adequately communicated its work rules to employees. It's not enough to just have the rules that they have to show that the employees knew about the rules through an active communication program, training, education. Right.
1: On uh, number three is that they took steps, the employer took steps to discover violations of those rules. Um, so so was actively sort of engaged in the process of checking and making sure um, you know, that the rules were being
0: adhered to. That's right, Taylor. And not just monitoring an after active program of monitoring for potential violations, but if they see violations, they have to establish that there was a record of enforcing against those violations, maybe through the form of reprimands or coaching and counseling or something more serious like penalties, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, that's that's the four elements that uh, that an employer has to show to, to show an employer um, unpreventable employee misconduct case. A little bit trickier here because the employee in question, J.D. Abrams asserted, was the foreman.
1: Right. Um, so this is where we get into this idea of unpreventable supervisor misconduct. And so there's three elements that, that the court will look at here um, when an employer is, is sort of asserting this defense. Um, The first is that the employee was acting in a supervisory role at the time of the accident.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the second is that the supervisor had actual or constructive knowledge of misconduct. If you want to establish that a supervisor was the one involved in unpreventable employee misconduct, uh, it's important to to identify whether or not the supervisor had actual knowledge of, of any misconduct.
1: And then third, and, and perhaps the most difficult uh, to prove, um, is that the supervisor's misconduct was was foreseeable. Um, foreseeability can be proven if an employer you know, has deficiency in training or um, deficiency in terms of enforcement of their work rules, but there's certainly a lot of debate around this third element, especially in this case.
0: Right. So taking this from the employer's perspective, when trying to assert unpreventable employee misconduct where a supervisor is concerned, you can just look at the reverse of these that the employee was not acting in a supervisory role at the time of the accident, or that the supervisor didn't have any actual knowledge of any misconduct, or that supervisor's supervisor didn't. And uh, you could also uh, establish that there was just no way to foresee the misconduct by that supervisor in question. exactly. And so so those are the elements that an employer would have to prove when showing that it was a, well, we'll call it a rogue supervisor. Yeah. Okay. So the administrative law judge hears the arguments and issues the decision. Taylor,
1: right? Um, he rules that OSHA did prove its prima facie case um, here um, that, as a supervisor uh, with respect to knowledge, that Rivera's knowledge, uh, the foreman, is is imputed to Abrams, the employer, and so that's how um, OSHA proves its burden of knowledge that in, in you know in one of those four elements.
0: It's important to note that that when we talk about the supervisor's knowledge being imputed to the employer. That's because the supervisor is wearing their hat as part of the the company's management structure, right? You know, loosely used term of management, right? And so, so the question of whether or not the the supervisor's own misconduct is foreseeable really goes to the heart of whether or not that supervisor's conduct should be imputed fairly imputed to the employer. Is, right. that, is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the second issue that the administrative law judge looked at was whether or not J.D. Abrams had established these last two elements of the employee, unpreventable employee misconduct defense. This is the idea of monitoring and the idea of, of enforcement, of, of discipline. And the administrative law judge didn't believe that J.D. Abrams had made its case, had established its evidence to support that those two elements existed.
1: Exactly. With respect to monitoring, the, the administrative law judge says that there was Really, no documentation um, to provided to to support this idea that Abrams was actively taking steps to detect violations of safety rules at the worksite. Yeah, it's interesting, Taylor,
0: because they did provide testimonial evidence. They the judge complained that that wasn't enough. He would have liked to have seen documentation evidence. And I, I don't know that that's fair. There's many cases, I'd say by the thousands, where testimonial evidence, in the absence of documented evidence, has to be given credit if there's no countervailing evidence that the, the trier of fact has to balance or yep. weigh for credibility determinations. Yep. So so he he really, I think the administrative judge probably went out on a limb with that specific finding that there was no documentation, therefore the testimonial evidence had less credibility by itself. I don't know if that's per se yep. justifiable. Right. And then finally, the administrative law judge found that there was no proof that Abrams had effective and consistent measures for disciplining employees in the event of Safety rule violations. Well, I think this is interesting. They did show evidence of disciplinary measures being taken. In, in addition, they they established that the two employees who were involved in the trenching activity at the time of the OSHA investigation were indeed disciplined. Right. Of course, OSHA OSHA's response to that was that discipline that took place as a consequence of an OSHA investigation didn't have the same weight and could not all by itself. Uh, suffice to meet that fourth element, that fourth element that a company has a pattern of disappointing safety violations.
1: Right. It's almost like a too little, too late argument there, kind of drawing the line, the distinction between a pre-inspection or pre-citation enforcement and then what happens after the
0: fact. Yeah, that's right. You you can think of it as a too little, too late kind of um, skepticism by the court, but I think rather that the court's saying it's not an ingenuous or sincere Mm -hmm. demonstration of Enforcing against safety violations the way it would be if it was uh, to have occurred in the absence of an right. OSHA inspection. Right. No, right.
1: That's a better way to put it. There's
0: better uh, reliability as to the sincerity of the program yeah. if it was ha- handled sort of spontaneously by the employer. All right. So, so Abrams uh, sees the administrative, JD Abrams, the entity sees the administrative law judge's, judges decision and issues a, uh, files an appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals. For the Fifth Circuit, which is the proper jurisdiction for an appeal of such a matter.
1: right. They're now asking the, that circuit to overturn the ALJ's decision. Um, we got a chance to look at the briefs um, before the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, with respect to the, the arguments that Abram's making. Um, I think one of the big ones is that the the foreman Rivera admitted in testimony uh, to making a, a quote unquote big mistake that was contradictory um, to his training. So they're really trying to hammer on that idea of kind of a you know a rogue supervisor, you know supervisor misconduct.
0: Right. I think it's pretty good evidence. Um, Certainly, it could be used as evidence by OSHA uh, of an admission that the standard was not complied with. But it is, in fact, also clearly, to me, evidence that he's saying, I knew what my training was, and I made a mistake that the company would not have endorsed, sanctioned, or approved, had they known. That seems to me to be the import of that testimonial evidence. And so, so J.D. Abrams supplied that as one of the bases for its appeals that that testimony seems to be um, not given sufficient weight by the administrative law judge, and I'd like the Fifth Circuit to take another look at that. Right, right. That's that's going to be a tough one because the Court of Appeals is not going to uh, revisit a judge a, a trier of facts, credibility findings, or the weighting that he gives to evidence. They're more likely to only intervene if they see an error as an application of the law right right or perhaps there was an evidentiary ruling that he'd made about this but i don't see anything in the brief to suggest that the allegation was an evidentiary ruling it was more that he didn't that the judge didn't give due weight to this testimony right right
1: Right. Uh, another key component um, of the arguments that Abrams is making before the Fifth Circuit is, is what you were talking about before, Manish, sort of this, you know, ignoring the testimonial evidence, you know, requiring um, sort of the, you know, the, the paper documentation. Um, you know, Abrams is arguing that this is, this is a heightened legal standard to, to sort of call or, or demand, you know, specific evidence um, and that they, the ALJ essentially, you know, disregarded some, some of the pre-inspection disciplinary actions that Abrams tried to prove through testimonial evidence.
0: Right, and the rest of the brief, the uh, the folks at JD Abrams make a, a, a lot of put a lot of effort into trying to to establish that they did have a safety program. It did call for routine safety audits. There was a pattern of monitoring, a pattern of discipline, and they also put a lot of effort into establishing that JD Abrams is an entity that puts a high degree of emphasis on on worker safety. safety. So. We want to talk about that that latter case, the second citation item, really quickly, because I, I think the real interesting element of the appeal before the Fifth Circuit is the unprotected trench. Sure. But but real quickly, the the rule as a as a technical rule is that the landing and there's a, a really nice drawing that, that Taylor you've you've included here has to that the ladder has to exceed the height of the landing by at least three feet uh, for safe mounting and dismounting. This decision gets the administrative law decision gets a little bit astray when it gets into this element. And I think that the far more interesting facts and the far more interesting citation is the is the protected trench. To that point, OSHA, when it filed its counterbrief before the Fifth Circuit, alleged that there, there were significant gaps in testimony uh, regarding the company's efforts to conduct safety audits. And that OSHA believed that there were other elements of the record that undermined that assertion and that therefore it was a credibility determination that should be left to the administrative law judge.
1: Yeah, that's right. And OSHA does make a couple interesting arguments. Um, one of them we wanted to highlight is is sort of this idea that management's uh, failure to visit the site um, where the pipe burst the day before the OSHA inspection is sort of, you know, evidence on its face that the company wasn't actually, you know, robustly uh, in, inspecting um, for for errors of work rules, you know, that third element of unpreventable employee misconduct. It's, it's an interesting argument.
0: Yeah, OSHA asserted that the only evidence regarding monitoring was testimonial, and that that it itself, that testimony contains substantial gaps. But I, I think that the other quotient of this, this testimonial evidence was that uh, it was heavily reliant upon the disciplinary actions that took place immediately following the OSHA investigation. Right. And that as to the monitoring side of things, uh, that this idea of a corporate program for auditing was was not really what... OSHA was hoping to see, they were hoping to see on-site regular monitoring for compliance. Indeed, there were several management staff that were identified in the administrative law judge's opinion, and Mr. Rivera was only the foreman of the crew that was working the trench, but he had a a supervisor, there was a job superintendent for that job site, and there was another supervisor that was on-site, both of whom outranked Rivera. And they were at that job site or they were assigned to be at that job site, at least as part of their nominal titular duties, I'd say.
1: Right. And and one of OSHA's main arguments in their brief is that, you know, you have the six hour period where this violation is occurring. Employees are working in an unprotected trench. If those supervisor employees that you mentioned, Monish, were actually driving around and checking for enforcement of the work rules, that they would have caught this. And so it's sort of on its face evidence that that type of supervision wasn't occurring.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, Taylor. Well, why don't we talk, Taylor, about what, uh, what employers should do in light of the J.D. Abrams case? Because I think this is a case that anytime you look at the employer, unpreventable employee misconduct defense, it's a, an intriguing and incredibly important uh, decision for employers. But in particular, I find it more so when you're dealing with an allegation of a rogue supervisor. Right. I think the first thing uh, coming out of this case is that trench protection shouldn't be balanced against, weighed and weighed and balanced against, Uh, any competing construction objectives. In this case, Mr. Rivera testified that he suspended the requirement for the use of a trench box specifically because he thought the trench box would do damage to the water pipe. That is a weighing and balancing of a workplace safety rule. And I'd say life protecting workplace safety rule, weighing and balancing it as against uh, protecting property, the, the trench and the water pipe and delaying the projects. Those are construction objectives. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, puts an employer in a tougher spot to defend uh, when an OSHA citation is issued for specifically that decision to suspend the use of the trench box. So I wouldn't put trench box, I wouldn't put trench protection as something that has to be put into a sort of a decision matrix. I think that that is prerequisite before any other construction objectives are evaluated. Yeah,
1: totally agree. Um, so the second one here is to, to train field staff on how to interact with OSHA during an inspection. Um, you know, we remember the four elements here, um, especially with, with regard to exposure. Um, you could actually see in, in sort of the transcript here um, some of the questions that the ocean inspector was asking the employees on site, um, trying to get at this element of exposure. Um, with respect to the ladder, one of the arguments that J.D. Abrams makes in their brief is that no one used the latter at, in its current form when the inspector found it. Not-
0: well, I, I think, yeah, when the inspector found it, but there are, I think more precisely, there was no evidence of what the height of the ladder was when it was in use. Right,
1: right. right. But so you see them asking questions of the employees, you know, how do you use the ladder? Would you use it in this condition? And you see them sort of giving uh, OSHA its exposure element, checking that box just through the interview. Um, So certainly something that we would, you know, not recommend in terms of best practices.
0: Yeah, Taylor, this goes to something that you tell safety and health professionals all the time, which is that OSHA can't Uh, make its case without those last two elements the idea that there was exposure knowledge of exposure etc and and more often than not that requires employee testimony that may not be precise may not be well phrased and may may put the employer in the position of having to get back to the truth on an uphill battle against something that maybe somebody inaccurately or imprecisely might have said right so it's really critical to remember uh, when interacting with compliance officers, to be very careful to say things precisely, truthfully, but with a great deal of accuracy. Yes. And uh, and if you are unable, if you don't have knowledge enough to do so, then to frankly uh, admit that you may not be the right person with that knowledge. Exactly. Um, I think those are important points. Thank you, Taylor. And I think that when you look at the the other element uh, that Osh has to make, which is monitoring, um, uh, I'm sorry, that, that's one of the affirmative defense elements that an employer has to make, yeah. that they they that they monitored the, the worksite regularly. Uh, it's important to note that that can't just be devolved to one person. Let's say in this case, the foreman, Rivera, uh, that if you rely on that one person to do the monitoring, then it begs the question, who's monitoring the foreman in the event that maybe the foreman makes a decision that's in direct contravention of corporate safety policies. So here... You know, where you have a safety and health professional or a job site superintendent, those people should also be expected to regularly and routinely and frequently monitor the job site that they are assigned to for specifically for compliance with corporate safety and health rules and compliance with the job plan that's based on a job site analysis. And I think that that critical element uh, may be one of the most powerful takeaway lessons from the JD Abrams case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next, you know, you, you've heard us say this uh, a lot on the show uh, document all instances of discipline. Um, so, you know, post incident and, and post inspection discipline is not enough, you know, you see the court here kind of hold it against Abrams that they didn't have, you know, written records of discipline um, for, for violation of work rules, you know, prior to the incident it certainly is something that they really could have, you know, used to, to help their case.
0: Yeah, Taylor, I think that's right. And I think that the part that often gets missed is when, uh, let's say a supervisor sees somebody doing something the wrong way, and they tell them how to do it the right way. That doesn't get documented. Right. Because if you think of just documenting discipline as reprimands that go in the written personnel record, or um, suspending somebody for a day, then then you won't catch or capture those other moments in your documented record. But coaching and counseling and reapplying employees to the right way to do things, the safe way to do things is also a part of the universe of events that needs to be recorded by a job site supervisor, uh, because that qualifies as a demonstrable or a written record of enforcing the rules. It need not just be disciplinary events. Uh, Finally, I'd say that it's important when crafting a, an argument for contesting a citation to work closely with your OSHA counsel to identify what the actual violation of the standard is. OSHA, in my opinion, got this wrong. The trenching standard that they cited states that each employee in an excavation shall be protected from cave by an adequate protective system. Now, what OSHA alleged was that the moment of an employee, a subordinate employee, entering the trench was the violation, that an employee was in the trench unprotected, and thus the rogue supervisor doctrine shouldn't apply. The administrative law judge didn't use that language of the rogue supervisor doctrine. He applied the unpreventable employee misconduct doctrine, but rejected that Rivera was the employee in question because he engaged in conduct regarding trenching activities together with his subordinate employee and that that rogue supervisor doctrine should only be applied, the administrative law judge said, in instances where the supervisor goes off all by himself and engages in misconduct and contravention of corporate safety laws uh, rules. Uh, in a manner that's unforeseeable and unpreventable. But that wouldn't apply here, the administrative law judge said, because he acted together with a subordinate employee. So because the subordinate employee was in the unprotected trench, that that was the violation that the supervisor should have prevented, Rivera. I don't think that the administrative law judge got that right. And I think that that would be the centerpiece gravamen of my challenge in the Fifth Circuit, that, that the violative moment was not protecting the trench from cave-ins when an employee entered. Thus, it was the decision by Rivera not to use the trench box that violated 652A, section 652A of the construction standard. It says each employee in an excavation shall be protected. So the violation was not the employee's entry, but the lack of protection. And that lack of protection is the decision that belongs to Rivera alone. Thus, identifying what is the moment of violation is critical to determining who is the violator. And in this case, it would have been Rivera. But the analysis the administrative law judge used was incorrect. And he asserted that because they both entered together, it was not the decision not to use the trench box, it was the entry into the trench that constituted the violated condition. And I think that's where he erred. And I think that would be the A, B, and C arguments that I would assert in the brief to the Fifth Circuit. So I think that the last takeaway item is to carefully identify What's the actual act that's violative or allegedly violative? uh, And don't let OSHA get away with misframing that part of their case. Well, I think that's 30 minutes, Taylor. We we call it the OSHA 3030 because we do this every 30 days. And we've been doing that for 10 years without missing an episode. And we try and cover an impactful issue in OSHA law in about 30 minutes. And that is this month's 30 minutes. Uh, thank you all for participating. We're going to stick around, by the way. Don't forget for the off the record section, for those of you in our live audience, don't forget that all those prior episodes for the past 10 years that I've re- uh, referenced are on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Come by our website and check out those prior episodes. A lot of great material in there. Uh, if you're ever feeling like you you need a little extra refresher training on safety and health law. Workplace Safety and Health Law. There's some great material on our website for 10 years worth of podcasts. We'll be back in a month. In the meantime, hopefully you'll link in with us if you aren't already connected to us via LinkedIn. If you get a LinkedIn connection request from us, make sure you accept it so that we stay LinkedIn. Um, and in the meantime, don't forget that we to subscribe to our podcast and remember to rate and like it as well as the YouTube uh, channel that, that can be accessed through our website, khlaw.com. You can get our podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms and we'll be back on August 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That'll be our 10th anniversary. Our first episode was August mm-hmm. and it was 2013. So that'll be our 10th anniversary episode. Hopefully you'll you'll be able to carve out some time and, and rejoin us on that date and time. Uh, but also don't forget that if your organization is uh, responsible for compliance with Tosca or Reach, we have sister programs, the Tosca 3030. It's next episode will be August 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern and the Reach 3030 will be on August 23 at 10 a.m. Eastern. Well, thank you, Taylor Johnson. Uh, I'm really grateful that you joined us today. I'm grateful to all of our team here at Keller and Heckman in its Washington, D.C. office for its support in putting this episode together. And thank you all, those of you participating in the this episode of the OSHA 3030. I hope you stay in touch. If you have any other questions that you hadn't gotten around to, please, by all means, email Taylor or me other one of us, anytime. Uh, we love chatting about this subject uh, and don't mind hearing from all of our friends at the OSHA 3030. If you have a quick question about any matter in OSHA law that's uh, answerable off the top of our heads, we'd be happy to chat with you about it. Uh, well, that's today's OSHA 3030. We're going to turn off the recording. Thank you all. We look forward to seeing you next month. And until then, stay safe.